Does that mean God's not in control? He is in absolute control today. He is reigning sovereignly over this world. Nothing escapes him by accident. There's never an emergency meeting of the Holy Trinity. God is on his throne. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are studying the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, and last week we began a look at the second half of chapter 11, which deals with the 14th judgment that befalls the earth following the rapture of the body of Christian believers. This judgment is actually a proclamation that soon Jesus will be returning to earth and that he'll begin his millennial reign. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he breaks out for us how the judgments are unfolded and revealed seven seals. In the seventh seal is contained seven trumpets. In the seventh trumpet is contained the seven bowls. That's what you learn in the Revelation. The seven seals, you can only see one at a time. Unlike the trumpets, you can see all of them. And if you can see all of the trumpets, then you can see what's in the seventh trumpet, which is the seven bowls of wrath that ushers in the second coming of Jesus. So that's where we're at, and with each of these series of seven, there has always been a space of time. One through six seals, space of time, not literal time, but time in terms for the reader, and then the seventh seal happens. And so what God does in each of these parentheses is He shows you what's been going on during this time. In the middle of the tribulation period, when the abomination of desolation takes place right in the middle of the 70 years, the Bible teaches, then the seven trumpets start. Between the sixth and seventh trumpet, again, there's a space of time, so to speak, a parenthesis where God shows us what is happening, what is going on. Now, with that said, three dramatic events are underscored here in verses 15 through 19. If you want to jot down a few notes, first, there's an announcement of victory. There's an announcement of victory. Verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Now, this verse seems out of order because this happens when Jesus comes again, and we won't read about that, the second coming, until the 19th chapter. But don't forget, this section of Scripture is being written, read not only by us, but by future saints, tribulation saints. They are living during the worst time in human history. And when the seventh trumpet is blown... It's like there's more, yes, there's more, but there's more than just wrath. Jesus is coming back, and it will be a time of really great encouragement to them, but it's a time of encouragement for us as well because all Scripture is inspired by God. God didn't write the book of Revelation just for those who will read it during the seven-year period. He wrote it for us as well so that we can learn from it. And so John's writing of the Messiah's sovereign rule on the earth would have been a great encouragement to a first century reader. Why? Because this book is written in 95 AD. It's a solid date. Domitian, the emperor, is the emperor, the world leader, so to speak. And we have written in a number of different rocks and documents that he gave himself the title, God the Lord and the Lord of the earth. That's why once a year, unless you bowed down before Domitian and offered incense, 
you're either persecuted, killed, or exiled. Unless you said, Domitian is Lord, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord, then you would be hurt. The Christians who love Jesus would only say, Jesus Curios, Curios, Jesus is Lord. They would not say Caesar is Lord. They would only say Jesus is Lord. And so where's John? He's in exile. He is a political prisoner. And God in his sovereignty protected him. Why? So he could write the book of Revelation in that cave. I've been to that very cave in which John wrote. There's only one possible place there on the Isle of Patmos there in Turkey where it could have happened. Then the seventh angel sounded. There it is again, the seventh angel. And that seventh trumpet, remember, is how many bowls? Seven that bring about the second coming. And so what you're going to see here in verses 11 to 15 is kind of a, a summary. It's kind of a schematic of things that are yet to come. And he's going to build off of this summary and unfold it for us. The seventh angel sounded, and what happened? There were loud voices in heaven. Do you remember what happened when the seventh seal was open? Oh, man, when the seventh seal was open, the first trumpet blew and there was 30 minutes of silence in heaven. But when this particular event takes place, no silence, only praises, loud voices. Some of your translations say great voices. And these great voices are distinguished a couple verses from now from another group of people who are praising God who are called the 24 elders. So who are these loud voices? Who are these great voices? Well, I don't have to wonder because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And if you remember in chapter 5 and verse 11, they were already identified for us. Let me read it to you. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And if you remember, they were saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So around the throne are the four living creatures, myriads of angels, and these 24 elders. And they create this incredible voice, the voice of many angels, this loud voice that we're reading here in the 11th chapter, who are separated in just a moment from the 24 elders, from their voice. In 5.14, we read, and the elders also fell down in worship. And so here in chapter 11, when the seventh trumpet is sounded, there were loud voices in heaven. And they are described, notice, as myriads of angels. Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, we just read in Revelation 5.11. You remember this term? We read it in our study of Daniel. Let me read to you Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7 and verse 10, the Ancient of Days, who's the Ancient of Days? Anybody remember? Which member of the Trinity? The Father. That's right. The Ancient of Days is on his throne, and we're told around the throne is a river of fire that was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat in the book so we're open. Now, the term myriad is like the term tithe in Hebrew. Like in Greek, it is a mathematical term. Now, we say, well, I give a tithe, and, you know, you give $5 to the Lord. Well, a tithe of $5 would be a tithe if you made $50 that week. 
because a tenth of $50 is $5. So we use the term very, very loosely, but biblically, the word tithe literally means a tenth. Likewise, the term married is a mathematical term in Scripture. And so instead of just translating the term myriad, the King James and the ESV interpret it for you, but rightly so. They write in this passage in Daniel, in 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And so, and then we read, and thousands of thousands. So there's millions and millions of angels that are surrounding the throne of God. Again, myriad is a mathematical term. It means 10,000. And 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. But the term myriad could also be used to describe just an incredible number because it was the largest digital number they had in Greek and Roman writings. A myriad. It was the biggest number they could conceive of to describe a large group. I don't know what we would use today. When I was a boy, it was a billion. Now we're talking about $21 trillion in debt. And we're headed for a disaster that unless we turn this ship around and stop spending money we haven't earned, there's going to be a collapse financially in our government, and not just our government. If America falls financially, the world will fall financially. And we think that we can spend money we haven't earned, and you cannot even our own government accounting office say that the debt that we have is unsustainable. Even the current debt, if we go up a couple of interest points, we are headed for a total disaster. So now we speak of trillions, but maybe a equivalent term today would be quadrillion. You say, how big is a quadrillion? I don't know. It's, it's, it's a big, big number. That, that's the thought behind this term myriad. Millions and millions of angels around the throne of God are creating this loud voice. So while we're talking about a new world order, please understand that the thought of a new world order from man's perspective is not new. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 11. There's a fellow by the name of Nimrod, we studied it in our exposition of Genesis, who tried to create a political and religious unity. And he did it at a place where he built a tower up to heaven, and the place was called Babel in Hebrew. In Greek, it's called Babylon. There is a place that we're going to study, a political, religious unity that is mentioned first in the 14th chapter, but enumerated in two chapters of the Revelation called Babylon which is a political, religious, one world order. And so what you find in the book of Genesis in kernel form, by picture, by type, by illustration, is all these prefigurements of what God is going to do in the future. So there's one ark with three levels and one door because there's one God who is made up of Father, Son, and Spirit, and one door to enter into the ark of salvation, for Jesus is the only door. Abraham up there on top of Mount Moriah giving his uniquely only begotten son. The term monogene, only begotten, is applied only to two people in Scripture, Isaac 
and Jesus. Isaac is the only begotten, and that he too is a miracle baby. Jesus is a super miracle baby without a human father. And where does he offer Isaac? Up there on the Temple Mount called Mount Moriah. That's Mount Moriah where the temple was. Says the mountains of Moriah and the very peak of the mountains of Moriah. If you could take some GPS tool and say, what is the highest point of the mount, mountains of Moriah? It's a place today we call Golgotha. Jesus at the peak of the mountain, so to speak, bled on a cross. It's all by type, all by picture. Nimrod is a picture of the coming Antichrist and this one world political ruler in this one world religion. Now understand, what Satan is going to do in the future, he has wanted to do since he fell and rebelled against God. He's wanted the world to worship him. And because he said, I am, I will, I will, I will, I will, five times over, God threw him out of heaven. We'll study that a little bit later in the Revelation. He and a third of all the angels rebelled with him, and God threw them out of heaven. But understand, when Adam rebelled against God, he lost the plan that God had for him. God wanted Adam to rule and have dominion over the world. He lost the farm, so to speak. And so three times in the book of John, Satan is called the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the God, small g, of this world, of this age. Look at Luke 4. Just listen to it. If you remember during the temptation of Christ, Jesus is brought to the pinnacle of the temple, which was the southwest corner. And he led him up there and he showed him all the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you all this domain in its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. That was a legitimate offer. Jesus never disputes it. But he refuses to bypass obtaining the kingdom except by going through the cross. But Satan has been given dominion. And so what has been happening in the Revelation beginning in the fifth chapter is the father hands the son that seven-sealed scroll. It's the title deed to the earth. He's broken the seven seals. And then the trumpets sound. And as the trumpets sound, God says here in verse 15, or he says, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, some of your English translations, because it reads a little bit better, certainly sings better in the Messiah. This is one of those verses sung in the Messiah. They say kingdoms, kingdoms. That's not the way the Greek text reads. The New American Standard with great precision says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Why? Because the Antichrist is going to create a one world kingdom, so to speak, a unified worldwide government. And Jesus is going to come and take his place and rule over the world. The kingdom of this world, a hundred million plus angels, probably much more than that, are announcing the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now you see that word, Lord, the kingdom of our Lord, who's that a reference to? The Father. The kingdom of our Father, you can see, you can paraphrase it. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of God the Father in His anointed one, His Messiah, His Christ. 
Two members of the Godhead are here in view. The Holy Spirit always takes the back point and He shines the light on Jesus. But we'll see all three members of the Trinity before we're done at work in this coming kingdom. But here, the kingdom of the Lord. Lord, by the way, do you know that that is a title that is given in the Revelation? Kurios, not just to the Father, but to the Son. Why is that? Because to see the Father is to see the Son. They are equal. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Now, when that is said with loud voices, it's bad news for the unbelievers of this world. It is the best news for those who know the living God. And we'll see, beginning in chapter 12, that even though Satan is fighting a losing battle, he will not relinquish control. He will fight to the very end. And it seems like he is winning, but Jesus is going to crush his kingdom and dismantle it. Remember what King David wrote in Psalm 2? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh, and His anointed, His Messiah. The word Messiah, Messiah, Christos, Christ, means anointed one. The kings of the world, what do they do? They take their stand against who? Against God the Father and against God the Son, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. By the way... Peter in Acts 2 uses this, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 4 uses this same verse as an illustration of Pilate, of the rebellious people even in his day, the rebellious Gentile people of this world who are against God. And so in Psalm 2.9 we read, you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them with earthenware. When does that happen? When Jesus comes back. He is going to crush the kingdom of this world, and he is going to rule. Now, understand this term, the kingdom of God. It's a very important term as we study the revelation. People all the time want to study revelation, but they don't want to think. I mean, I'm just being honest with you as a pastor. They can't even say the book's title. They, oh, I'm so glad you're studying Revelations, Pastor. It's not Revelations. It's Revelation. It's one revelation. There's no such thing as the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. But many times we don't want to think and mine it out. This is hard work. But if you will stick with me, it will be an incredible blessing to you when you see what is going to happen. Understand this term, the kingdom of God. It's used in three principal ways in Scripture. On the one hand, it is used to describe God's sovereign rule over the nations of the world. Yes, there's coming a day when the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. Does that mean God's not in control? He is in absolute control today. He is reigning sovereignly over this world. Nothing escapes Him by accident. There's never an emergency emergency meeting of the Holy Trinity. God is on his throne. Listen to what the psalmist says. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Likewise, in Psalm 145, David writes, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Nebuchadnezzar, when he finally gets saved and he begins to see straight, he says of the Lord, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
God is over all that is happening in this world today. That's one way the term the kingdom of God is used in Scripture. But it's also used not just of God's sovereign control over the world, but it's also used in a spiritual way. And so the kingdom of God, Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. And of course, Jesus told Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have two kinds of sight, physical and spiritual. We're blinded through sin to be able to see with spiritual eyes. But when we're born again, we can see the kingdom of God. We can begin to perceive things that we didn't perceive before. Some of you from day one don't have a clue about what I'm talking about in Revelation because you haven't been born again. You don't have a helper. Some of you are brand new Christians. You say, this is complicated. It is. But you wanted me to preach the book of Revelation, so I'm preaching it. So hang in with me and don't worry about it if you're a new Christian. Why? Because learning the Bible is like learning math. Some people you teach their numbers. Some you teach addition. Some multiplication. Some calculus. And everything between those two points. And it will build over the years in your knowledge and your appreciation and understanding of all that God is doing here will just grow and deepen. You cannot see God's kingdom, but neither, Jesus said, can you enter the kingdom unless you are born again. Why? Because this is a spiritual kingdom. But there's a third usage to the term kingdom of God in Scripture, not just of God's sovereign rule over the nations, not just those who are members of the kingdom, so that Jesus can say the kingdom of God is within you, but also a literal, actual, physical kingdom. Most people don't realize it, but what we typically call the Lord's Prayer, we pray that every time. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Has that ever been answered? No. It's not yet fully been answered, but it is going to be answered when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. The kingdom of God will literally come to the earth. This is what God said over and over and over again in the Old Testament. God said to David that one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. Hasn't been fulfilled. Messiah came, a baby will be born to us. A child will be given to us. The baby's name will be called Mighty God. We saw that fulfilled in the first coming. And the governments will rest upon his shoulders. Hadn't happened yet. But it's going to happen when Jesus comes back at the end of this seven-year period. The fact that there is a coming kingdom is taught in the Old Testament. The length of the kingdom is given in the New Testament. Listen to this. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's the length of the kingdom. Jesus is still king of kings. He is still Lord of lords. But someday when he comes back, it's going to be fully realized. That's the announcement. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. He's given it to us here in schematic form. Then he's going to introduce us to seven personages to follow in the next two chapters. And then we're going to see the reality of that seventh trumpet in the seven bowls that will usher Jesus back to the earth. All right, that's the announcement. And that spills over to the acclamation of praise. There's an acclamation of praise. We read now in verse 16, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces 
and worshiped God. Now, remember the 24 elders? Hold your finger here and go back to Revelation 4.1. I know there's some slides, but it will be helpful to you if you literally turn back. If you don't bring a Bible, there's no wonder you can't understand what I'm doing. (laughs) Without a Bible in your hands, you'll get 50% less out of any sermon. And I see some of you without a Bible. Bring a Bible. If you don't have one, come see me. We'll get you a Bible. Revelation 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So there's this open door in heaven, which we saw was the rapture of the church. Revelation 2 and 3 concerns seven churches. After these things, after the church age, the door is opened and the church is caught up into heaven and they're never mentioned again until they come back with Jesus in the 19th chapter. And of course, God is fulfilling a promise that he made. Remember, if you turn back another page or it's across the page in my Bible to Revelation 3.10, Revelation 3.10, Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia, because you have kept the word of my perseverance a fruit that you are genuine born-again believers, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. There's an hour of testing that is going to come upon the whole world. Question, has there ever been in the history of man an hour of testing that has come all the way across planet earth? Never. But Jesus said it's going to happen. God is going to literally fulfill this prophecy. And he says that I will keep you from, I will take you out from, some of your English Bibles say. He does not say, I will keep you through this hour of testing. He doesn't say, I will keep you in the midst of this hour of testing. He could have used two different pronouns inspired by the Spirit of God if he had intended that. But that's not what he says. I will take you out of this hour of testing, which, by the way, would be totally meaningless to the church at Philadelphia because all those members have been dead for 2,000 plus years. But this is not simply what he says to the church at Philadelphia. He says, this is what the Spirit says to the church is. Not just the church in Philadelphia, but the church that meets here in Beaufort, South Carolina this morning. Again, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Now look at verse four of chapter four. Around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and with golden crowns on their heads. By the way, there are three visions of the throne room in the Bible, in the Revelation, in Isaiah, and in Daniel. The throne room um, visions given by to Isaiah and Daniel are identical. In fact, they're identical to John with one exception. There's no 24 elders in the Revelation. Everything else is there, but not the 24 elders. Why? Number one, the church didn't exist in Daniel or Isaiah's day. I will build my church. When was the church born? On the day of Pentecost. And he has taken the church up into heaven through that open door. And now the 24 elders are there. Now, if you remember, this was the first time we were introduced to the 24 elders. These are not 24 angels. That's how some who try to say the church has replaced Israel, God's done with the Jew. By the way, that is becoming so popular, and it's planting a spirit of antagonism against Israel. 
Tomorrow we'll conclude our look at the new world order that's proclaimed in chapter 11 of the Revelation. And we'll see how even the evangelical church has begun to turn its back on the nation Israel. To listen again to this message, use the Search the Scriptures app for iPhones and Androids, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order it on DVD or CD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV27. Tomorrow, the conclusion of our look at the New World Order. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.